Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We dive into a new study on policing and mental health related demands. Climate change hitting Ontario grape growers and winemakers. Many voices are going to be heard at the Emergencies Act inquiry, making trick-or-treating accessible and inclusive for all. The Ticats battle the Stamps in Calgary and the McMaster men's volleyball team challenges North America. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 A very interesting study that was published in the Canadian Journal of Criminology and Criminal Justice shows COVID-19-related social restrictions that were implemented, as we know, across Canada, led to a drop in most types of crime, and mental health-related incidents remained relatively stable, and that last part is the key to our discussion today. Our guest is Dr. Tara Hodgkinson, study co-author and an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. Dr. Hodgkinson, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me here. I always like when I'm when I'm talking about studies or reports or or, or this type of thing. I, I like to get a baseline uh, in terms of information on on the foundations you worked on. So what what information did you compile and analyze? For sure. So I should start a little bit at the beginning. We have been looking at the impact of the COVID nineteen related social restrictions on crime in general uh, and calls for service in general across Canada for a while now. And the reason for that is because an exceptional event, like any exceptional event, is going to probably have a bit of an impact on how we live our lives. uh, And offenses like crime generally relate to how we live our lives. So we had the opportunity to look at uh, things like property crime and violent crime in the past in other jurisdictions, but we hadn't had an opportunity to look at mental health. And so conveniently, uh, Statistics Canada put out a number of um, data or a number of different data sources uh, from different police services across the country that related to mental health. So we were able to look at mental health apprehensions, uh, mental health other, which can include a myriad of different things, uh, as well as uh, suicide and attempted suicide. And so we combined those. So we really just wanted to understand if the declines we had seen in violent crime and property crime across the country during these social restrictions had extended to mental health. And we found that actually they hadn't. But they hadn't increased either, which is what we expected. We saw a lot of stability in that case. We've heard throughout the pandemic that our mental health has gotten worse and that mental health-related incidents were on the rise. We discovered that's not entirely true. So where did that disconnect come from and, and what does the data tell us? So the data does show that in a couple of jurisdictions, we looked at 13 across Canada that were available to us uh, through Statistics Canada. Um, In about two or three, we did see uh, a significant increase, uh, as we would have expected, but generally we saw stability, uh, and we think that that may actually relate to other studies that we found in the literature that actually demonstrate a lot of resilience uh, in these kinds of situations. So kind of counter to the narratives that we had heard that these were increasing, at least those that were reported to police, uh, seem to be much more stable than we expected. And that seems to do a little bit with the resilience of folks who are out there, but we're not exactly sure at this stage because we're only able to work with the data that we have. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Tara Hodgkinson, study co-author and an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. There have been calls for more police resources to be directed at handling um, these mental health-related incidents. What should police forces be doing? Should they be directing more resources to these type of, of situations? So I should clarify that already police services are 
directing a lot of resources towards mental health. We had, um, we've had 30 to 40 years post the institutionalization, and that has led to a lot of downloading of responsibility for mental health, which is not a, not necessarily crime related. Sometimes, of course, individuals who are dealing with mental health related issues do engage in criminal acts, but by and large, this is a social issue. Uh, we see that police have been responding to this as the only 24-7 service uh, that we have. And I don't actually think that's fair. I think that um, a lot of the police officers I've had the privilege of interviewing and talking with across Canada as part of my research are really frustrated at the lack of training and capacity that they have to deal with these issues. And I don't think that means more training or capacity for them. I think we actually need to start holding our provincial and federal governments accountable for investing into preventative measures for mental health. And I think we have yet to do that. And so I think we need to be seeing police services push back as well as they are not necessarily the best equipped to deal with these kinds of issues. You mentioned regional differences. Were there patterns in those differences from province to province that that maybe we can, you know, uh, um, combine to make uh, police forces and, you know, as you mentioned, these preventative strategies work a lot better? So it's a little bit difficult to identify any patterns simply because we only had 13 jurisdictions. So that was cross Canada, but of course that's not a lot of representation from each location. We also had a bit of an over-representation from Ontario where we do see increases in mental health related calls. Uh, that does seem to be in the Ontario region. Um, and that could just be simply because we had more of those police services participating in uh, this data. Uh, but it could also be because of the kinds of services that are available in those specific jurisdictions as well, uh, and the fact that we may need better um, opportunities and support ser- services uh, other than police uh, in those uh, jurisdictions. For more information on this study, check it out in the Canadian Journal of Criminology and Criminal Justice. Dr. Hodgkinson, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for chiming in on this. Thanks so much. That is Dr. Tara Hodgkinson, Assistant Professor, Department of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. And this study comes at a pretty interesting time as we are digesting what is happening in Innisfil, Ontario, just north of Toronto in the Barrie area, where a 22-year-old man who opened fire on two police officers who were responding to a call uh, in that community did not draw their firearms and they were shot uh, Tuesday night. The Special Investigations Unit is investigating this incident. Uh, I'm sure their report will be unveiled as soon as it is completed uh, because we're really wondering uh, what exactly did happen in that home. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Climate change. When we think about climate change, we think of, well, number one, warmer temperatures, uh, melting glaciers in the Arctic, uh, governments trying to do their best to, you know, curb emissions uh, on a global scale. The impacts, as we know, are wide, wide ranging. And in particular, it has affected winemakers and grape growers in this province and really in, in every um, country around the world that does make wine. Debbie Zimmerman is the CEO of the Grape Growers of Ontario and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. How would you describe the impact that climate change has had on grape growing and winemaking in this province? Well, I think there's a couple of things. This is uh, going to be a very challenging year from a a really tough winter we had, the winter of 2022. So it's something I haven't seen in my 20 years of being with the organization. 
where vines have actually just died completely. They couldn't take the stress of the really cold snap we had in January, but also because we had a very wet December and they don't acclimate uh, properly when you have that kind of um, extreme temperature changes. The other thing we're seeing is, is invasive pests we've never seen before. There's one out there called the spotted lanternfly. And it's devastating to tender fruit and to grapes, and it's migrating from the U.S. Um, and it's it's a pest we would only see in you know we're at very warm climates, but you know it's, we're now having to be vigilant about this change as well. You mentioned the the wild temperature swings that we've seen. Yeah. Is that is 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 that crippling to a crop? Well, it can be. Um, we do everything we can to mitigate um, these cold temperature changes. We have what they call wind machines, not to be mistaken with a wind turbine. They're only turned on to move the air around when we have these extreme cold temperatures. Typically, we use them, you know, in the spring, but now we're having to use them in, a, in, an, in an environment. They, they don't operate well in an environment where there's wind, but, you know, we're having to depend on so many other measures to mitigate these swings where vines need to acclimate. So they need to shut down their production so that they can go to sleep while like trees losing their leaves over the winter. But if they can't acclimate, then it leaves them in a very perilous condition. It sounds like grape growers and winemakers have adapted and they've kind of hit a, a ceiling in terms of what they can do to save their crop. It's a very good point. Um, we've, we also need to ensure that, you know, the vines are healthy and strong this is with the summer. What we saw was it looked like things were going to go well, and growers can bring up what they call a sucker to, to trellis and train it. But the vines just gave up and collapsed, so they didn't have enough production to push out the, the strength they need to produce the grapes. So that, to us, is very concerning for the long term. I mean, we're the largest wine region in Canada. Our economic footprint is huge in this province, going along with tourism and restaurants and you know, just the, the whole dining aspect uh, of our three wine regions, Prince Edward County, Southwestern Ontario, and Niagara. So it's, it's very concerning. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Debbie Zimmerman, CEO of Grape Growers of Ontario. We're talking about the impact that climate change is having on uh, making wine, growing grapes in, in this province. Is there any sort of information on the average percentage of crop loss due to climate impacts or, or even the dollar percentage that we're losing? Well, you know, we'll have a very good, um, we'll have a very good uh, idea of that, or you know, following this harvest. So we're still in harvest right now. We'll be in harvest right up till the middle of November. So we'll have a very good idea of the overall impact. But you know, it's it's always the downstream impact on on a, on the supply of wine that you know your favorite wine at the LCBO might not be there. But you know, we're we're trying to balance out the needs of everything that we do. So, I mean, we see we're we're down we're down significantly, but um, I won't have those numbers until the the crop is actually um, over over the um, way scale and into our system. We got about sixty seconds. Are governments helping out? Provincial, federal? Is there any help? It's a very good question. We've appealed to the provincial government and the Premier of Ontario toured Niagara with the Minister of Agriculture recently and. We have asked the federal government for a recovery program. Um, We're waiting to hear from our federal minister of agriculture, and we're certainly making them well aware of this, but um, we will need their support to get through this because grapes 
it takes grapes five years to recover. So our growers will be without a crop for five years if they have to replant. Debbie Zimmerman, CEO, Grape Growers of Ontario, thank you for your time today. And uh, hopefully we can turn the tide going forward here. Yes, thank you. That is, uh, yeah, very serious stuff and lots of lots of money tied into that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. At first glance, that may seem like a great deal of time. In reality, our time is very limited given the breadth of the issues that have to be covered. This commission will need to hear from dozens of witnesses and examine thousands of documents. Our timelines are tight and there's little room for error. And it's Justice Paul Rouleau, the judge leading the public inquiry into the federal government's unprecedented use of the Emergencies Act. This inquiry began yesterday. It's expected to wrap up at the end of November. As you can imagine, yes, there are some tight timelines here. The question is, what can we expect to hear going forward? Laura Berger is a staff lawyer and spokesperson for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Laura, good morning. How are you? Good morning, I'm well. The question that this commission, this inquiry, seeks to answer is whether or not the use of the Emergencies Act was justified. How will the CCLA present its case? That's a great question. Our role is really to hold the government to account in this process, to test the evidence that's being presented, uh, and to take a look and to really try and understand what information was before the Prime Minister and before Cabinet when they made the extraordinary and unprecedented decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and to pass emergency orders last February. We heard from some people yesterday on day one, including the counsel for former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly, who resigned in response to his handling of the convoy protest. Um, the lawyer in, in, in this event said, quote, the events in Ottawa represented an unprecedented threat to national security, posed as they were by the illegal occupation. Your reaction to that statement? I think I think it's a an interesting question. The Emergencies Act requires that's a, there's a legal threshold, and a threat to national security is one of the situations that can justify triggering the Emergencies Act. But I think it's an interesting question, given that the blockades in Ottawa were really localized. It was really um, a specific situation that was facing our nation's capital, uh, and. The question that we're asking is why existing tools and resources and existing laws couldn't have been used to deal with that situation, uh, rather than taking this really extraordinary step in our democracy, which is to invoke emergencies legislation uh, and to pass these orders by, by cabinet and the prime minister. We also had protests at border crossings as well. How does that uh, magnify or, or impact or influence what is going to be talked about in Ottawa over the next few weeks? Absolutely. I think what's interesting is that we saw yesterday Council for the Province of Alberta clarifying that the situations at the border crossings in Alberta, for instance at Coots, Alberta, were resolved using existing laws. Uh, and in fact, the blockade in Coots was, was cleared up before um, the government passed those emergency orders. So certainly, you know, there were national, nationwide dimensions. We're going to be seeing evidence and representations from council for different provinces. Uh, We also heard sort of an opening statement by council from the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP. So certainly uh, this was a complicated situation, 
But it's important to keep in mind that the emergency orders that were passed applied right across the country, from coast to coast to coast. They applied to every single Canadian. They did not just apply at border crossings or in Ottawa. So a key question we have is why that was necessary, uh, why a more geographically targeted response might not have been appropriate. Uh, so that's something we're definitely looking forward to seeing over the next few weeks. It's a very legitimate point and, and a great concern because the possibility is, we only got about 30 seconds, is, you know, w- when does the next shoe drop? When, when is this act going to be used again? What's the threshold? That, that's really the question. Absolutely. Even if you did not care about the blockades in Ottawa, if you think about an issue that you do care about, an issue that would get you to protest in the streets, whether it be abortion rights or the environment or the safety of the community you care about, what we're really thinking about is you know, the future and, and, and how our government and how our society will respond in the future to similar situations. It's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Laura, really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's Laura Berger, staff lawyer and spokesperson for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. As the Emergencies Act inquiry is going to ramp up starting today, it began yesterday, and it will wrap up at the end of November. We should have a final report by February. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All right, so we know that it's not yet Halloween, or is it? This weekend, a neighborhood on the Hamilton Mountain will be transformed into a Halloween village. Why, you ask? Well, there's a group called Treat Accessibly that's making trick-or-treating accessible and inclusive for everybody. This is a really neat program, and it's come to Hamilton. Rich Padulo is the founder of Treat Accessibly and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rich, good morning. How are you? Happy Halloween, Rick. How are you? Same to you. I'm fantastic. People with accessibility barriers, as you know, have generally been excluded from the fun on Halloween. Uh, they don't get the same experience of perhaps climbing the stairs or being on a porch and you know grabbing some candy. So how are you and your group trying to change that? Thanks, Rick. Yeah, there's 400,000 kids in Canada today that have a mobility, sensory, or intellectual disability that has a lot of barriers against it when it comes to Halloween and trick-or-treating, not to mention uh, parents who have similar uh, disabilities trick-or-treating with their kids who want to see their kids have the fun. So we, uh, what we do is we invite families, give them tips and free tools to treat from the end of their driveway. Basically any home can be accessible at Halloween. You can do it from the end of your driveway, from in your garage, and by just simply removing this barrier of stairs from the scenario, it makes things a lot easier with the kids with that those various disabilities. Yeah, and I mean, we even give free lawn signs, so you can put it at the end of your driveway, kind of like a bat signal, a week before Halloween, and saying that uh, you can treat accessibly. And those signs are available at Remax offices across Canada, especially in Hamilton. Yeah, so this Sunday here in Hamilton yeah. between one thirty and 6.30 at uh, the Cartier Crescent Acadia Drive area, that's near Upper Sherman and Stone Church, there's going to be yeah. a Halloween village in which yes. homeowners in that area are taking part, right? Yeah, we uh, we went out to that area after uh, uh, we found that that was the best street for it. It's a, it's a dead-end street, uh, quiet traffic, and we knocked on doors on Cartier and explained the movement to them and said, 
If you do this, it will create kind of natural groundswell for the movement because we're going to have over 1,500 people there learning about the movement because we invite children with and without disabilities, parents with and without disabilities to attend the event. And as soon as I explain the story for them, we now have 25 homes that are fully decorated already and will be treating from the end of their driveway. We also have musicians, uh, magicians, uh, 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 people from the 501st Garrison, which is from a galaxy far, far away, attending. And then all the parents and kids, they're the true star. Like, they'll dress up like you wouldn't believe. And because it's daytime, you get to see all the costumes and really get to interact with everybody. It, it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember the scene from E.T. when everybody's walking around, yeah. E.T.'s in the ghost costume. Everybody's on the street because we actually closed down the street. We worked with the city of Hamilton, closed down the street, and uh, it's not just it's not just uh, the street. We actually get support from Canadian Tire as well, who actually come and provide decoration and and fund all the events. So we have all the musicians and magicians and and extra fun stuff too. So it's kind of like a Halloween Disney World for everybody, and everybody's welcome. But our special guests uh, for the event are the Ron Joyce Children's Health Center and McMaster Children's Hospital. So we've been working with them and to share with their families to ensure that they know that there's an accessibility inclusion experience for them. And we've been getting beautiful notes from parents saying, you know, our kids don't get a traditional Halloween door to door. So this is the, probably going to be the first time. And some of these kids are 15, 16 years old. So it's very, it's very impactful, and everybody who attends really wants to champion the movement afterwards on Halloween night at their home. Tremendous. Rich Padulo is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rich is the founder of Treat Accessibly, and they are making trick-or-treating accessible and inclusive for everyone here in Hamilton this weekend, Sunday, October the 16th, 1.30 to 6.30. It's in the Carche Crescent, Acadia Drive area near Upper Sherman and Stone Church. Now, we should mention that these Halloween villages, including this one, is free, but you have to pre-register, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. So if you visit it, it's not, it's super easy. Everybody knows how to do these kind of things now. Everybody goes to treataccessibly.com, head to the Halloween Villages section, find the Hamilton one. It's really easy and click the link and register. But if you have family in any of the cities out west that we're doing it, because next week we go to Calgary, uh, St. Albert, and Surrey, I get to fly out there and do these again. It's like I get Halloween five times, actually seven <laughs> times this year because wow. of Canadian Tire. It's just awesome. And uh, Kinder's donated a ton of chocolate for us, too. So it's really, it's awesome. <laughs> this is a win, win, win. We got about 30 seconds. What is the reaction of these kids who are partaking in Halloween? Well, the, the kids' reaction is exactly what you would think it would be. And because it's daytime, you get to see it. But what really hits the homeowner's heart and all of them say afterwards they want to be back is the parents' reaction, who have never been able to take their kids trick-or-treating before. I'm a parent. The impact on me is just discernible. Our family do not uh, identify with having a disability. So when I get to hear this story from parents, it, it, it blows your mind, Rick. It just Amazing. blows your mind. Amazing. Rich, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with this and going forward. 
Thank you so much, Rick. Have a great day. Thanks for sharing this. You got it. Rich Padulo, founder of Treat Accessibly. Go online or register today, treataccessibly.com. Click on the Hamilton link and away you go. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of those Tiger Cats, they're in Calgary tonight and some fans are wondering what the team's chances are of making the playoffs. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Well, the odds are not that astronomical when it comes to the Ticats playoff chances, but it is a big game for Hamilton. They'll take their late-season playoff push to Calgary tonight. R.J. Broadhead is the play-by-play announcer at the Ticats Audio Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. R.J., good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Always good to chat with you. So there is a chance. There is, there is a chance, and and I've worked out all the scenarios, and it gets still a little bit complicated, which is surprising when the Tiger Cats are five and ten, and there are so many scenarios in these final three games. It definitely makes it exciting, and even Ottawa is still in the mix. They would need a little bit of help, but the easiest route that I know you you've talked about it on air, uh, Rick, is to win all three games for the Tiger Cats, and they'll be in the playoffs. However, we know this is a tough one tonight. Yeah, tough indeed because McMahon Stadium is Death Valley for the Tiger Cats. <laughs> yes. 17 straight winning se- uh, seasons in the playoffs for Calgary, 14 straight seasons above 500, and 15 straight losses for the Tiger Cats in Calgary. And I was talking with Luke Tasker, the color commentator on the Tiger Cats Audio Network, yesterday. and. And I said, wow, 15 straight losses in Calgary. That means you never won there in your career. And he said, <laughs> no, no, we didn't. So it, it is almost in their minds. And he said it has been talked about as well, that it's, it's just a really tough place for the Tiger Cats to win. Last time they won, Danny McManus was the, the Tiger Cats quarterback. And we just saw Danny get inducted on the Wall of Honor. So, um, and Tiger Cats are 0-7 on the road. But it is sports, and strange things can happen. I really think, Rick, that the team the Tiger Cats are putting on the field in Calgary is very close to the team that they need. Simone Lawrence is back. Dylan Wynn's still out, but really he's the only one on the defense. And Anthony Johnson will stay in at receiver. Stephen Dunbar's back. Tim White. uh, Wes Hills will be playing. Dane Evans is at quarterback. I think if the Tiger Cats have a chance to win, this is their lineup. So I'm optimistic that if they want to make the playoffs, they have to go into Calgary and and win this game tonight, and I think they can. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is R.J. Broadhead, play-by-play announcer with the Ticats Audio Network. Ticats Stampeders tonight. Pre-game show begins at 8.30. Kickoff is 9.45. The fifth quarter in the wee hours of tomorrow morning will hit the airwaves with me at the helm. Looking forward to that. You mentioned the name Wes Hills. What a revelation this guy has been. Wow, no kidding. I, I've that goes back to training camp last year, but even this year, I would watch, and every practice the Tiger Cats had throughout this season, 34 would stick out to me. Number 34 would stick out to me, and I would always be like, wow, if he ever gets in there and gets an opportunity, he, he might be great, and he finally got that opportunity, and I, I love talking to him because he 
he loves that contact. He loves to run over the defense. He loves to block. He loves to carry the ball and be the hitter, which is exciting to watch, and it's been effective. The offensive line, we haven't talked about a lot because it's been good, and it's been creating space. So those go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's really interesting that Wes Hills ran 25 times, and Dane Evans only threw 24 times. So basically it was a, a tactic of if you're not going to stop Wes Hills, we're going to keep running them, and I expect we'll see that same philosophy tonight uh, against Calgary, although Calgary's defense is, is one of the best. So it'll be impressive if this Hamilton offense can get clicking, and it probably does revolve around Wes Hills. It just makes them multidimensional. Another uh, name and number to watch and listen out for tonight, Malik Carney. What a game he had last week, and what a season he's having as well. Yeah, a hat trick of sacks last week, and and he's really solidified that end on the defensive line for the Tiger Cats. When Dylan Wynn went down, Eric, I think a lot of Tiger Cats fans were very concerned, but guys like Malik Carney stepping up, Mason Bennett, when he's in there, he's been really good, and... Uh, Malik Carney, one of the performers of the week, as was Wes Hills in the CFL. So they'll have to carry that on. However, one statistic that's interesting, and I'll be watching this tonight, and I hope Tiger Cats fans will too. Tiger Cats were able to get to Saskatchewan. They had seven sacks. Calgary's only allowed 13 sacks all season long. So this defensive line trying to get to Jake Mayer, the Calgary quarterback, will be a challenge. But if they can do it, Tiger Cats will be successful. This is, uh, I would imagine that the Tiger Cats have a little bit bad taste in their mouths considering what happened in week two in which they were up, I think it was 24-3 to at halftime on Calgary and let that game slip away and lost in overtime 33-30. Is there much talk of any sort of redemption or is it full focused on getting the win and improving their playoff position? Yeah, well, we both know Coach O and it's it's the next game and not looking back, but you're right, it was 24-3 at half. It was 24 nothing at one point. So that is a, a devastating lead to not hold on to, especially at, at Tim Hortons Field. That was probably the the Edmonton loss wasn't great either, but that was the, the one that really doesn't sit well. It might have changed the Tiger Cats whole season because as you mentioned, that was really early in the season and, and seemed to be picking up the pieces all season long ever since that loss. So um, yeah, I think there would be a, a little bit of redemption um but right now wins are the most important thing and both of these teams are in an interesting situation because calgary's fighting for a home playoff game and they're tied with bc right now and the lions have the tie break so they outright have to win that and calgary will have a lot of say in who makes the playoffs in the east division because they play the tiger cats tonight and then their final two games are against the saskatchewan rough riders so as far as the tiger cats are concerned with revenge it would be great to get it and say, yeah, we got revenge after the game, but they just bottom line have to go into Calgary, a place they have struggled, and get a victory if they want to make the playoffs or at least make their route easier to get into the playoffs because a loss doesn't eliminate them. We're going to go right down to the wire in this regular season to see if the Tiger Cats can get in. It's going to be very interesting to uh, watch and listen to, and R.J. Broadhead will be describing all the action on the field tonight. Play-by-play announcer with the Ticats Audio Network. R.J., have a great call tonight. Okay, sounds good, Rick, and have a nap if you, you're doing uh, the fifth <laughs> quarter after this game. That'll be an early one for you into Saturday. Yes, that that is the plan. Thanks, RJ. Okay.
Ticats stamps tonight. Pre-game show at 8.30, kickoff 9.45. The fifth quarter will hit your airwaves half an hour after the final whistle. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's our weekly look at what is happening at McMaster University. Uh, well, in short, a lot of things are going on, especially with the men's volleyball program. Not only is Mac hosting the 2023 U Sports Volleyball Championship, which is going to come in March. They're also taking on some heavy hitters from the NCAA. Dave Preston is the longtime head coach of the McMaster University men's volleyball team and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dave, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday indeed. And you are uh, hoping to have a happy Saturday as well because tomorrow night at the Burridge Gym, it's Mac versus the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, this is part of the North America Challenge. Tell us about this matchup. Uh, it's been a long time uh, in the in the works. We've had uh, Ohio State in here in the past. We've had uh, other teams, Long Beach States, come in, uh, and other good reciprocals that we've had in the NCAA. But uh, obviously, COVID has kind of put some of that stuff on the shelf. Uh, and with m- a majority of that behind us right now, it's time to uh, relook at uh, getting some good experience for our student athletes against some of the top competition in North America. So it's a really good opportunity for our student athletes to kind of get back to what I guess people would view as normal. Yeah. Why, why is it important to take on teams from the U S do you learn something Do coaches share information? How does it all work? Uh, yeah. I, I think uh, we learn a lot. Um, there, the, I think there's a, a couple big takeaways. The first one, Rick, is that um, we get to play a really, really highly competitive team uh, with very little competitive cost. And what I mean by that is, this team doesn't play in our league. Um, we won't face them in the playoffs. We won't have to challenge them later on. So you can pretty much uh, expose everything you have in your in your tactics and your systems and so on, and you won't have to worry about them understanding it. Or There may be a few teams that maybe get a copy of the tape, and you can learn a little bit from that, but it's nothing like the real thing. So really good competitive match with very little competitive cost. So that's probably the biggest takeaway. And then the second thing, Rick, is that we try and recreate that championship environment in our gym as often as possible for our student-athletes. So when we are hosting the youth sport championships in March, uh, the the championship atmosphere, the championship environment is is more common to our student-athletes. They, they've done it before. Uh, they've experienced all the feels. They know what it's like. They can manage the distractions. And uh, it helps with performance down the stretch. I'll bet. And uh, any fans who want to partake in the North America Challenge or get in on the early bird tournament packages for the U Sports Men's Volleyball National Championships at the Burridge Gym, March 17th, 18th, 19th, can go online to marauders.ca slash tickets. When we look at the OUA season that's coming up, how does Max stack up against uh, the rest of the field? Um, I think we're pretty good. We've got a lot of returning guys from last year's OUA championship team. Um, we've got some some new blood in the system as well. So uh, we've got a transfer from Redeemer University. Uh, Jason Wildebor is with us this year. Um, so uh, there, there's, a, there's a couple new uh, pieces to our puzzle, but a lot of returning guys that won the championship last year. And uh, so I, I think overall um, – There's some newness to this season as well because we're now into a 20-game schedule. So uh, we'll have to manage that and and how we return to that, again, normal. But uh, 
yeah, pretty excited for what, uh, for what we've been able to put on the floor right now with our student-athletes. This past summer, you were named the head coach of the Australian men's national volleyball team. When do you start working with the Volley Roos? I uh, already have. Uh, the international season was uh, kind of May to August, uh, and thankfully, uh, Volleyball Australia is very uh, lenient in terms of uh, allowing me to coach at McMaster as well. So it's been a pretty good cooperation. But yeah, I spent four months uh, working for Australia, not necessarily working in Australia because we we're all over the globe with the international schedule. But uh, a really cool experience and a lot of good takeaways that I was able to bring back to the McMaster guys and share a lot of that international uh, game with them. Yeah, I would I would say that that's a win-win-win for you, for us, the Australian program, and for McMaster. I see it that way for sure. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I think our student-athletes are already benefiting from it. I can tell that. Uh, just a, a little bit of knowing what the next level has in store for them. And some of our guys, like Sam Cooper, uh, Max Gatton, those guys are going to play at that international level, right? So Jason Wildeboer has uh, aspirations to play there too. So like, there's a lot of guys that can benefit from that. And for me to go out and get that information firsthand and then bring it back, I think is a, a tremendous asset for them. Absolutely. Dave, appreciate your time today. Best of luck as the OUA volleyball season rolls around. And, of course, tomorrow night as uh, Mac takes on the Ohio State Buckeyes at the Burridge Gym. Thanks for the time. Hey, thanks, Rick. Appreciate the efforts. That is Dave Preston, head coach of the McMaster University men's volleyball team. If you want tickets to the North America Challenge, Mac will take on Ohio State, as I mentioned, as well as Long Beach State. Marauders.ca slash tickets. That is the same website to get in on the early bird tournament packages for the 2023 U-Sports Men's Volleyball National Championships at the Burridge Gym. That's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.